This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you open them, please, to uh, the book of Jonah? The book of Jonah. Let me back up again. Let's make sure we don't lose sight of the forest as we work our way through the scriptures. So in September of 2017, we started a journey as a church through the entire Bible. We started in Genesis. Everybody from two years of age on up is studying the same story each time that we gather together. And uh, we find ourselves in the middle of the prophets. Uh, that's a body of literature in the Old Testament. Um, Let me review this. Let me show this to you real quick. This is a chart. This is just a snapshot. This is not the whole thing. If we try to put the whole thing up there, you wouldn't see it because there's too many names. It's too long. The history goes like this. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. The question in the plot line since then has been, how do Adam and Eve once again re-enter and live in the dwelling place of God? How does humanity re-enter and live in the dwelling place of God. That was the uniqueness of Eden. That's, that is the question that drives the biblical story from Genesis 3 onward. Fast forward a little bit. God raises up a man by the name of Moses to lead his people Israel out of Egypt and get, gets them, by the end of the book of Deuteronomy, they're on the verge of crossing the Jordan River to enter the promised land. That's Joshua's job. Joshua does that. Joshua was Moses' protege. He leads the people through the Jordan River, across the Jordan River, into the promised land. Their mission is to conform the land, to conform Canaan, the promised land, into the new Eden. It doesn't work out so well. We have story after story of failure after failure of God's people to faithfully do this. So we come across this period of the judges, and they're not judges in the sense that we think of judges today. They are um, uh, military, national, spiritual leaders who were then charged to bring Israel back into conformity with the purposes of God and to lead the mission of transforming the land into this new Eden. It doesn't work. It fails. So we get to this place of the kings, and Israel starts with a united monarchy. You've got the first three kings, Saul, David, Solomon, who were kings of the united monarchy. Then you had the stuff that happened with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The kingdom divides. You've got two. You've got Israel in the north, ten tribes in the north. You've got Judah in the south, Judah and Benjamin in the south. And God, throughout the period of the kings, raises up prophets who function as Israel's preachers, pastors, to exhort them to come back to covenant of fidelity, to faithfulness to the Lord's purposes and plans for them as a people and as a nation. That is how the kind of the two intertwine. Well, today we're looking at, at the story of Jonah, which is kind of a unique um, prophet story in that uh, God doesn't come to Jonah to speak to him so that Jonah would go to his own people and, and call them back to faithfulness with God's design for them. Instead, God comes to Jonah and tells Jonah to go and speak to another nation. And so one of the interesting things that we see here is we see the missionary heart of God in the Old Testament. 
Missions stuff is not a product of the New Testament alone. We see the missionary heart of God even in the Old Testament. So let me show you the, the broad outline of the book of Jonah before we get into this. Jonah, the book of Jonah is very symmetrical. Very symmetrical. So in chapters 1 and 2, the main idea here is Jonah's flight from God. But it breaks down into three sections. God's word to Jonah. Jonah's encounter with Gentile pagans. And then Jonah talks with God. Those are the first two chapters. The second two chapters is Jonah's mission to Nineveh, but it also breaks down with the same three sub-points. God's word to Jonah, Jonah's encounter with Gentile pagans, and Jonah talks with God. And so this symmetry creates repetition. And one of the repeated themes that we have in the book of Jonah is Jonah's close encounters with people who are racially and religiously different from him. It occurs twice. Once with the sailors and once with the Ninevites. And in both cases, uh, Jonah is dismissive and unhelpful. And the way in which he behaves and the way in which God interacts with Jonah teaches us something about the heart of God. He cares for how believers, his people, relate with and treat those who are deeply different from us. And we'll see in this that love for neighbor is a whole lot more compassionate and confrontational than we ever imagined it could be. Love for neighbor, as God wants it to be, is a whole lot more compassionate and a whole lot more confrontational than we ever imagined it could be. So we're going to look at this under three headings this morning. We're going to look at grace and love, truth and love, and the identity that gives birth to both. Grace and love, truth and love, and the identity that gives birth to both. First, grace and love. So God comes to Jonah says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, that's Assyria, and I want you to preach a message of judgment against them. But Jonah heads in the opposite direction. He hears that, he wants nothing to do with that, he contracts a ship, he sets sail, he goes in the opposite direction. We pick it up in chapter 1, verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us so that we will not perish. Now, these sailors are career mariners. They're not novices. They've seen and experienced storms before. So their response to this indicates this was a particularly terrifying tempest. And yet Jonah, who is not of a seafaring people, by the way, is in the belly of the boat sound asleep. Now, there's all sorts of ink that's been spilled over how that's possible. How is it a guy who rarely ever is on a boat on the water can fall asleep in the middle of this? Most of them all agree that Jonah has become so self-absorbed in what God asked him to do and his rebellion against it that he's in a deep funk and completely oblivious to the world around him. The point of the text, regardless of, of, of what's going on in Jonah's head, the point of the text in chapter 1 is to contrast the posture of Jonah with the posture of the sailors. That's the point. So on the one hand, Jonah is the morally respectable prophet of Israel. He's completely out of touch with the peril that's facing them all. On the other hand, the pagan sailors are extremely alert, diligently trying to figure out a way to, to deal with their dilemma. While Jonah's absorbed in his own little world, the sailors are looking out for the common good. Jonah, a prophet of the only true and living God, never prays 
even after being exhorted to do so by a pagan captain of the ship while the pagans are scurrying about praying to their gods for help. The contrast is incredibly striking. Incredibly striking. The story is reprimanding Jonah. It's reprimanding him. For what? For having no interest in the common good. The captain is saying, Jonah, can't you see our need here? Look around. Don't you see our need? Why aren't you helping? We know you're a man of faith, so why aren't you using your faith to help the public good? Your faith, Jonah, looks pretty useless to me. Jacques Elou, uh, commenting on this story, writes this. He says, these Joppa sailors are pagans, or in modern terms, non-Christians. But the lot of non-Christians and Christians is linked. They're in the same boat. The safety of all depends on what each does. They're in the same storm, subject to the same peril, and they want the same outcome. And this ship typifies our situation. To a great extent, believers and non-believers are in the same boat. If crime plagues a community, if job loss decimates a city, if water shortage causes health problems, it impacts everybody, believer and non-believer. We're in the same boat. So the reason Jonah didn't let his faith be helpful to everyone in the boat is the same reason he's running from Nineveh rather than running to it. He does not want to work for the good of the pagans. He doesn't want to work for the common good of those who are of a different race and religion. He didn't want to contribute to the public good of those who believe and behave differently than he, he does. He's graceless. What's striking to me, the correspondence uh, between this story and the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's very striking. The question in the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, the question posed by the expert in the law of Moses was a simple one, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers the question with the story about the Jewish man who's on his way to Damascus, he's ambushed, he's robbed, he's beaten. Two Jewish men pass him by, offer no help, but a Samaritan stops to aid him. Now, Jews and Samaritans were of different races and religions. They had a long history of volatility in their relationship with one another. In both Jonah, Jonah 1, and the parable of the Good Samaritan, our neighbor is defined as someone who looks different than we do, who believes, who behaves differently than we do. What's interesting is at the, at the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan, what does Jesus do? What does he say? Go and do likewise. Just as the Samaritan cared for the beaten Jew, Jesus says, you go and do likewise. He wants us to treat people of different races, different faiths, in a way that is respectable, loving, generous, and just. Loving those who look different, believe different, behave different means very practical things. It means meeting their most practical, physical, material, and economic needs. This is not new in the history of Christianity. Um, I don't know what uh, Dr. Sunwall has in store for those of you taking his uh, class um, in the first three centuries of, from about 100 to 400 A.D., but it was a very interesting time in the history of Christianity. 
There was a guy by the name of Emperor Julian who reigned in Rome during the 4th century A.D. Uh, In a letter he wrote to a Roman religious leader, Julian complained that Christianity had gotten out of hand in Rome because in part because Christians were doing a better job taking care of Rome's afflicted than Rome was. In his letter, which we have today, he wrote to this Roman religious leader, here's what he said. He said, In every city, establish frequent hostels in order that strangers may profit by our benevolence, our Roman benevolence. For it is a disgrace when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans... That's how Christians were referred to. The impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Hear how irritated he is? He's irritated that Christians are doing a better job taking care of the physical needs of the Romans than the Romans are. And he's saying that is having an impact on Christianity's growth and spread throughout our empire. We've got to stop this. So the Christians in this polytheistic, mixed-race, licentious, sexual promiscuous Roman Empire are taking better care of those Romans than the Romans are. Imagine that. Imagine Christians having a reputation of taking better care materially, economically, of the afflicted among us than any other group or organization. Imagine that. This is part of Jonah's story. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. And what's interesting about it is that it frees you, it frees you to tend to the physical, the material, the economic needs of people who look different, believe different, behave different. Love is more compassionate than we ever imagined it being. It's more compassionate than we ever imagined it being. But it's also more confrontational than we ever imagined it being. Let's look at this idea of truth and love. And God's original command to Jonah comes to us in chapter 1, verse 2. Here's what we read. This is what God says to Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh. And here's what I want you to do, Jonah. I want you to preach against it. Against it. Preach against it. Because its wickedness has come up before me. Well, when Jonah finally gets around to it after a hiatus in the belly of a great fish, he reluctantly does what God asks. Chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, when you look at the content of what God wants Jonah to preach, it's not the kind of content that gives you warm fuzzies. You know, I don't picture hearing this and, and, and think to myself, yeah, this will give me a sense that God is really cuddling me and making me feel safe and secure. That's not the imagery that comes to mind when I think about the topic and the angle that God wants Jonah to take with the people of Nineveh. Sometimes we struggle then to see how in the world this could be loving. Right? Our culture possesses a badly, badly distorted view of love. A badly distorted view of love. 
not only is love a whole lot more compassionate than any era, any sector of society ever demonstrates, it's more compassionate, it's also more confrontational. When Christopher Yuan was here in January, he made this great statement. He said, unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Which means <laughs> telling people what they want to hear or giving them what they want may be the unloving thing to do. Now, God is love. There is not a, an, a single act or word that God does or speaks that is not loving. He's the uh, standard of love. He is the epitome of love. Everything he does is loving, which means sometimes the most loving thing we can do is speak a hard truth to those who are far from Jesus. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is speak a hard truth to those who are far from Jesus. Now, here's the deal. We've got to check our motivations before we do that because God's intent and design in speaking a harsh word into someone's life or a people group, people's group life is never to condemn. The point is to bring them to repentance. We're going to see this real clearly next week in the book of Joel. God does that not just with people who are not His people, but He does that with His own people. His words of judgment, His words of, 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 of harsh truth are always designed to bring about repentance. But sometimes we don't think that this constitutes love, speaking a hard word into someone's life. Interestingly enough, it was an atheist who made the strongest case for this in favor of it. It was an atheist by the name of Penn Gillett, one half of the illusionist duo Penn and Teller. Some of you may remember them, know of them. A few years ago, Penn posted a um, YouTube video. And in it, this is what he said. He said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. He's specifically recounting a time when a Christian came up to him after one of his shows and, and was very complimentary of the show, but then also started to share the gospel with him <laughs> after the show. And he was reflecting on that, and this is what he said. I don't respect people who don't proselytize, who don't evangelize. I don't respect them at all. He said, if you believe there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, he said, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Here's an atheist rebuking Christians. That if you have or you believe there's a judgment coming, you're hateful not to say something about it. See, love is more confrontational than we think it is. But hopefully, our confrontation is driven by compassion, not condemnation. 
There's a great story of a couple of friends in the 1800s, Robert Murray Machane and Horatius Bonar. Um, Machane was pastoring a church, and uh, the two of them had gotten together and were just talking about life and ministry. And, and just kind of offhandedly, Machane had mentioned to his friend that, that the Sunday before he had preached on the topic of hell. And Bonar, who was a very witty man, responded saying, and were you enabled by God's grace to preach it with tears? Love doesn't dodge the truth. It speaks the truth. It confronts with truth. But it does so from a heart of compassion. Third, the identity that gives birth to both. The million-dollar question as you read through Jonah's story is, is what, what is it, why is this guy like this? Why is he struggling with this? I mean, even to the very end, he is outraged that God would demonstrate compassion to the people of Nineveh. He's outraged over it, unhinged. Why is he like this? Well, we're given a clue. Jonah chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. This is what we read. Then the sailors said to each other, this is back on the boat in the middle of the storm. Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Now they're not asking Jonah these questions just to allow him to express himself or to be polite like we do in our day. And we ask these questions, we're, just, we're making conversation. That's not what they're doing here. They want to know about this guy because whoever this guy is is linked to the trouble they're in. They want to know what's at the core of his identity. That's what they're after because if they can figure that out, then maybe they have an explanation for why in the world they're going through this. Look at how Jonah responds. Verse 9, he answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, I will tell you, it's a little bit odd to see the first words out of his mouth be, I'm a Hebrew. That's an ethnic declaration. I'm white. It's tantamount to that. I'm a North American white male. That's what I am. Dan Timmer, who did a very, very detailed study on the book of Jonah, writes this. He says, since Jonah identifies himself first ethnically, then religiously, we may infer that his ethnicity is foremost in his self-identity. So if ethnicity is more foundational to Jonah's identity than his faith, that explains why he's so opposed to calling Nineveh to repentance. Jonah couldn't bear the thought of God blessing another ethnic group. Jonah's most vigorous loyalty was devoted to that part of his identity, which was most crucial, and that's his ethnicity. Look up here. Listen. Your most vigorous loyalty will be to that which is most core to your identity. Let me say it again. Your most vigorous loyalty, the thing that you will defend to the death, will be to that which is most core to your identity. 
Whatever that is, whatever that is, you will struggle to interact with, accept, love, care for those whose core identity is different than yours. Let me dig into this. If conservative politics is at the core of your identity, you're going to struggle to interact with, accept, and love those whose core identity is liberal politics. If liberal politics is at the core of your identity, you're going to struggle to interact with, accept, and love those whose core identity is conservative politics. If your race is at the core of your identity, you're going to struggle to interact with, accept, and love those who aren't of your race. If educational attainment, what you've accomplished with your education is at the core of your identity, you're going to struggle to interact with, accept, and love those who haven't achieved the same level of education you have. If socioeconomic standing is at the core of your identity, you're going to struggle to interact with, accept, and love those who do not belong to your socioeconomic class. If generation is at the core of your identity, you're going to struggle to interact with, accept, and love those who are of a different generation. If you want to know what's at the core of your identity, just look at the groups of people you struggle to interact with, accept, and love. That's the litmus test. That's the litmus test. Now, someone might be thinking, okay, if that's the case, then if being a Christian is truly at the core of my identity, shouldn't I also struggle to interact with, accept, and love those who aren't Christians? I'm glad you asked. The answer is no. If being a Christian is truly at the core of your identity, you'll be able to interact with and accept and love those who aren't Christians, and you'll be able to do that really well. You know why? Because the internal makeup of that identity is completely different than any other identity. I just went through five possible core identities. I went through politics, race, education, socioeconomic standing, generational category. When one of those is at the core of our identity, what heading or title or description are we subconsciously using? What words are we using to describe that? We're using words like better, best, right, high ground, ideal. My politics is the right one. My race is the superior one. My education is the exceptional one. It's attached to me. I'm better, I'm best, I'm right, my position, my education, my socioeconomic standing, me, 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 me. You know what that mantra does? It humbles the other and exalts me. And that's what Jonah did. But when being a Christian is at the core of my identity, what heading or title or description are we using? What message, think about it this way, what message does the gospel consistently preach to us? Here's what it preaches to us. It says, I am more sinful, flawed, and messed up than I can possibly imagine. But in Christ, I am more loved, valued, and cherished than I ever dared dream. Simultaneously. You want me to shorten that up? Here it is. I'm a mess. 
Jesus is best. I'm a mess, and Jesus is best. You know what that message does? It humbles me and exalts Christ. The other one humbles the other and exalts me, but the gospel humbles me and it exalts Christ. It leads to a completely different internal wiring and totally different approach to those who aren't like me. See, I can demonstrate grace towards those who believe and behave differently because it's only by grace I am what I am. I can risk speaking of God's judgment because I have no inner need for the approval of people. Remember, I'm already a mess. Christianity grew fastest during the first three centuries. Why is that? If you have not read Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, I would encourage you to do that. Rodney Stark, The Rise of Christianity, it's a classic. Um, In it, he explores the human factors behind the rapid growth of Christianity during its first three centuries. One of the observations he makes from the primary sources is how unique Christian communities were compared to the other subgroups of people throughout the Roman Empire. They were more diverse than any other observable community. And they they were diverse along numerous lines. They were diverse in issues such as race, but also diverse with socioeconomic standing, generation, class. They brought together groups of people who would never have gotten along if it weren't for the gospel. This is the identity that gives birth to grace and truth. This is the identity that makes it possible to interact with care and speak truth to people who look different, believe different, behave different. A gospel identity is the only thing that will fuel us to work for the common good without othering people. A gospel identity is the only thing that will empower us to speak truth without fear of being rejected for it. This can be an incredibly powerful and influential phenomenon within a community of people. I'll close with this. Many of you have read Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Uh, He and Lewis were so helpful in bringing imagery to um, the truth that we find in God's Word. One of the main characters um, is Gimli, the dwarf. Uh, He shares with his uh, whole race a distrust of the elves. In Tolkien's narrative, elves and dwarves had centuries of strife in their past. And Gimli one day comes to the land of Lorien and stands before the elf queen, Galadriel. And though he's really messed up and sad, she speaks words of encouragement to him. Here's the deal. She did it in his own secret language, a tongue that dwarves taught to nobody. So you have the elf queen speaking in his tongue a word of encouragement in a language that nobody should know. Well, Gimli's amazed. He's amazed at her knowledge of him and the generous gesture. And then this is how Tolkien tells this part of the story. And the dwarf, hearing the names given in his own ancient tongue, looked up and met her eyes. And it seemed to him that he looked suddenly into the heart of an enemy 
and saw their love and understanding. Wonder came into his face, and then he smiled in answer. He rose clumsily and bowed in dwarf fashion, saying, Yet more fair is the land of Lorien, and the Lady Galadriel is above all the jewels that lie beneath the earth. What's interesting is that after that scene in the rest of the book, Gimli's attitude toward the whole elvish race begins to change. And he's freed up to become closest friends with another elf, Legolas. When he's embraced by the love of an other, whom he thought was an enemy, it transforms him and enables him to welcome others who are deeply different from himself. To be loved by someone in grace and truth who is deeply different is transformational. This is the heart of the gospel. Do you realize that if you're a Christian, you've been embraced by the love of the ultimate other? Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus was in the very nature God. He was other to us. Think about the manifestations of Christ throughout the Scriptures. For, for centuries, His presence and His glory daunted people. But Jesus, the other, didn't exclude us. Rather, He came to us to live, to love, to speak truth, to die for us. This is the model for loving. This is the model for loving those who are deeply different than we are. When we look to the life of Christ, you know, we notice there that, that he, he didn't love, care for, and welcome us just by affirming everything about us. He didn't do it that way, did he? He called us to repentance. His death shows us the penalty for our sin and the need that we have to change. His death also shows us the enormity of His grace for us. His death shows us the lengths He was willing to go to in order to see us changed. So here we have the model. Jesus, the ultimate other. He doesn't exclude us, nor does He holistically affirm us. As strange and different as we are to Him, He lives among us, loves us, cares for us, calls us to a new life, dies and rises again. Let's pray. Jesus, convict us of low-level irritations we have towards people who are not like us. Show us just how degrading that is to them and dishonoring it is to you. Free us to be a a community unlike any other that works for the common good. We want to be good Samaritans. We want to go and do likewise as you told us to do. But we know, Jesus, that there's got to be some work in us if that's going to happen. I pray that you would form in us a gospel identity that humbles us and exalts you and leads us to treat other people with dignity and to speak the truth into their lives. 
Help us to see how much of a sacrifice it was for you, the ultimate other, to live, care for, love, and die for people like us. Jesus, help us to become like you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.